This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. I'm also the author of a new book, which was, I didn't think I would see it here today or yesterday, um, but with Haymarket Books called Atomic Days, uh, it's the untold story of the most toxic place in America. So if you've got an extra 15 bucks or something, hope you can pick it up. Um, it's actually not, oh, there's one in the back, great. Um, <laughs> I should have one up here to promote it. Um, it was not supposed to be out until uh, October, so cool that it made it to the event, the uh, conference this weekend. Um, thanks for everybody for showing up today. I, I think this is a vitally important topic, um, but I'll admit it is a bit, bit disheartening that we are again debating on the left the, the need for nuclear power. Um, I've long believed that we ought to build on the successes that came before us, not tear them down. But sadly, you know, with the wrath of climate change impacting every corner of the earth, uh, that's exactly what some are attempting to do. That, in many other fights, I would consider them our allies. Um, this week, a friend sent me an NPR story, something along the title of, uh, when even environmentalists support nuclear power. <laughs> um, I did read the article. It read like a piece of propaganda. And... But it's just this, this type of propaganda that I think seeps into the consciousness of a lot of people on the left and a lot of people that might not understand um, the history of the anti-nuclear movement, um, the dangers of nuclear power, because with climate change as it is, we are looking for answers. And I think it's, you know, nuclear power is now being promoted as one of these answers. But I think it's important to understand sort of some of the history of the anti-nuclear movement. Um, while there was opposition to nuclear power and nuclear weapons as far back as the 1940s, it really wasn't until the 1970s that anti-nuclear activism gained prominence. The most significant of these early protests against atomic energy took place in Seabrook, New Hampshire, where a nuclear power plant was set to be constructed. After the town voted against the construction of the facility on three different occasions, their voices were continually ignored, and the building of the plant moved forward. When citizens weren't able to curtail the plant at the voting booth, they decided to adopt more radical tactics. And in April of 1977, an ad hoc group of locals called the Clamshell Alliance held a civil disobedience protest at the site's location. Nearly 1,500 people were arrested, and the news of the action spread quickly. It was really the largest civil disobedient action of the late 70s, that they hadn't seen anything like it since the Vietnam War. Across the country, more protests soon erupted. In California, the same year as the action in New Hampshire, a group called the Avalone Alliance formed in an effort to stop the final phase of the construction of the Diablo Canyon. 
facility that's in uh, San Luis Obispo. Over a two-week period in September of 1981, nearly 2,000 protesters were arrested when they successfully blocked workers from entering the construction site. Following these Diablo Canyon protests, PG&E, which was the plant's operator, vowed to abandon all future nuclear projects in the state of California, and Diablo was the last nuclear plant to go online, which it did in 1985. By the time the protesters were rounded up at Diablo Canyon, the movement against nuclear power had evolved dramatically, with the meltdown at Three Mile Island in March of 1978 validating many of their concerns. Three Mile Island acted as a catalyst for more protests across the country, and it even made its way across the Pacific Ocean to Japan, where survivors of Hiroshima gathered in Tokyo. Ultimately, these actions culminated in the single largest anti-nuclear protest ever, which <laughs> is funny. I was talking to Ralph Nader recently, and uh, he was re remembering this, this action, and it was really at a, um, one of the most galvanizing moments of the anti-nuclear movement when 200,000 people rallied in Battery Park calling for an immediate shutdown of Three Mile Island and an end of nuclear power pro proliferation around the globe. These actions, along, of course, with the 1986 accident at Chernobyl, put a halt to the construction of new power plants across the U.S. Plans for dozens of these plants were shelved. But by the mid-'80s, the anti-nuclear power movement had shifted its focus and really joined forces with the rapidly expanding nuclear freeze movement, which was working to put the brakes on global nuclear arms race. In retrospect, the anti-nuclear power movement was one of the most successful social movements to take hold in the United States in the past 40 years. Yet now, in the name of fighting climate change, some are trying to undo this monumental success. There are many reasons to oppose nuclear power. I'm going to dive into seven of them. <laughs> I hope not to put any of you to sleep. The first one will be about why nuclear energy is not carbon neutral. I'll talk about mining impacts, nuclear power's ties to atomic weapons. I'll talk about nuclear waste issues and the risk of accidents. And lastly, the costs of constructing nuclear power and keeping it operating. I will generally focus on the U.S. as we still have the largest nuclear power fleet in the world. But nonetheless, a lot of these issues are universal. Right now in the U.S. there are 55 nuclear power plants operating. I think there are uh, four that are slated to be shut down. In total right now, there's a, of those, 93 reactors um, are operating. All right, let's first address the uh, major misconception about nuclear energy. It is not now and it never has been carbon neutral. So don't believe the hype. Advocates will often cite industry PR as saying that nuclear power doesn't reduce, it will reduce emissions by up to 50%. This is blatant misinformation. When each cycle of the energy development is taken into account, nuclear falls well behind solar and wind in regard to CO2 emissions. These life cycle analysis, or LCAs, find that nuclear power, with every stage taken into account, actually has a larger carbon footprint than natural gas, and almost double that of wind energy and a lot more than solar. How is this even possible if nuclear power doesn't produce CO2? It's because carbon dioxide emissions are at every stage of the nuclear fuel chain, from plant construction to mining to fuel fabrication, to the transport of waste, there's always emissions right behind. Nuclear fuel preparation begins with the mining of uranium. 
followed by the crushing of uranium ore and the extraction of uranium in, from a powdered ore chemically. All three of these stages take a ton of energy, most of which comes from fossil fuels. The fact is that the lower the concentration of uranium in the ore, the higher the fossil fuel energy required to extract uranium. This brings us to the topic of mining. The existing uranium mines currently operating around the world are nearing the end of their lifespans. And I think it's important to note that uranium mining is one of the most toxic mining operations in the world. It's, it's worse than virtually every other fossil fuel mining that takes place. Newly constructed nuclear power plants are supposed to have an operational life of about 60 years, with a lead in planning time of 19, 10 to 19 years. Nuclear power plants, which are currently being planned, would reach the end of their expected life right around 2080 to 2090. Power plants are now starting to operate, which would be shut down by the end of 2070. Estimates assume that currently operating uranium mines would be exhausted by 2043 and 2055. If we are to assume that this scenario is correct, it would not be possible to supply a nuclear power plant now with uranium until the end of its lifetime, which would mean if the nuclear industry and its advocates have its way, there are going to be a lot more uranium mines that are going to have to be deployed. Uranium mining, as I mentioned, is very energy demanding. It's a brutal pot process in the United States, and it's also a, a neo-colonial practice. The ra radioactive metal of uranium has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. It means it sticks around a very long time and gives us a really early picture of what life was on, like on planet Earth. The largest uranium deposits in the U.S. are located on the, Chicago, the Colorado Plateau, not in Chicago. <laughs> this is the home of the Diné, or the Navajo people. During the height of our country's nuclear weapons program, the government extracted 250,000 metric tons of usable uranium from 100 million tons of uranium ore. These mines were full of radioactivity and were largely worked by indigenous Diné. During the height of the country's uranium craze of the 1970s, there were 12,000 miners employed in the U.S., and a disproportionate number of them, about 5,000, were of Diné descent. They were paid very little, often less than minimum wage, and these miners would enter deep into these mining shafts, sometimes 1,500 15, I'm sorry, 1,500 feet below the Earth, Earth's crust. They filled their wheelbarrows with uranium ore, all while choking on soot and dust particles. It was dark. There was no ventilation. It was tremendously difficult, perilous work. And if there are more mines deployed, it will be perilous work again. Radon exposure in these gruesome mines causes lung damage, the dangers of which have been very well known to the scientific and medical communities well before these mines were even made. But the Diné and other miners were deemed as expendable. Many developed lung cancers as a result. One estimate put the risk at 30 times greater for those who worked the mines as opposed to those who did not. The government later recognized these, their afflictions, and in the 1990 Radiation Exposure Compensation Act paid out $100,000 per victim and issued a formal apology. It was really a slap in the face to these families that had been often lost loved ones, but the damage was done. In addition to the impact on Diné Health, their land, too, was ravaged. Upwards of 3 billion metric tons of waste was created as a result of uranium extraction. That's a dizzying amount that continues to poison native communities in the Southwest to this day. 
Any call for new nuclear power development, especially from advocates on the left, mustn't ignore these past horrors. Today, the U.S. imports most of its uranium from Canada. And many reports are issuing the same kind of distress that the, we, we know with the Diné. Impact is, is happening on lands, and the miners are getting sick. These uranium mines are notoriously poisonous operations, no matter how they are managed or how they are regulated. Heap leach mining, which uses sulfuric acid and cyanic salts in the process, poisons water supplies. Underground mines produce uranium yellow cake, which often ends up in large toxic dumps. Surface and open pit mining, often deemed the best method, has plenty of risks aside from the blatant landscape alteration. As with utilizing mountaintop removal to extract coal in Appalachia, open pit uranium mines increase erosion and have the potential to kill entire waterways during landslide events. And it's happened. And it happened in 1979 when a dam broke flooding the Puerco River near Church Rock, New Mexico, and 94 million gallons of radioactive waste was released. CO2 emissions aside, uranium mining is a nasty, destructive enterprise, yet it's vital to nuclear power generation. Which leads me to ask, if you support the land back movement, if you care about indigenous lands, if you care about the environment, how could you ever support mining of uranium? The ends, even if you are to believe the propaganda put forth by the nuclear power industry and their allies, did not justify the means. Now let's talk a little bit about nuclear power's ties to atomic weapons. First, I think it's important to understand that nuclear power was born out of the government weapons programs, in particular in the US and France, which uh, France has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in Europe. Both were conceived through government-backed programs and both continue to be tied to the country's nuclear weapons industries. As the Center for Strategic International Studies notes, the dual-use nature of nuclear technology is unavoidable. For the five nuclear weapon states, commercial nuclear power was a spin-off from weapons programs. For later proliferator, proliferators, the civilian sector was served as a convenient avenue and cover for weapons programs. In Britain, the country's nuclear power program was deliberately used as a cover for military activities. In France, to this day, the country's robust nuclear power industry is intricately linked to its weapons program. And they're, they're not shy about it. In 2020, Emmanuel Macron was clear about his government's dual interest in nuclear power and weapons. Here's a direct quote. Without civilian nuclear energy, there is no military use of this technology. And without military use, there is no civilian nuclear energy. It's clear what his message was. Without government funding and taxpayer support for nuclear power, France would not have a healthy and robust nuclear weapons program. It's the same here in the U.S., of course, and has been since the early days of the Manhattan Project. To this day, every process of the nuclear fuel cycle, from uranium ore mining, uranium ore milling, uranium ore refining, and enrichment, they're both used for military and energy. And they're both tightly controlled by state governments. For starters, nuclear reactors are used to create radioactive isotopes of hydrogen, which are necessary for nuclear weapons. Secondly, plutonium, which is a byproduct of the nuclear fuel cycle, is still used by some countries to make nuclear weapons. This will never change. Governments, rightly, rightly I'd argue, will always be fearful of countries or terror organizations getting their hands on nuclear fuels for the potential that they could use them in nuclear bombs. With all this in mind, how could anybody who opposes nuclear weapons support nuclear power? 
This would be like opposing Pentagon spending but supporting the war on terror. Then there's the issue of what to do with all this waste. It's a problem that doesn't have an easy fix, or I would argue any fix at all. The radioactive leftovers of nuclear power generation have to go somewhere, but they can't go any, just anywhere. The, nuclear, uh, the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository, which is currently closed, remains on the short list for atomic dumps in the U.S., but it's a dangerous gambit. Geological faults run through the proposed site, which would include a 1,000-foot shaft dug deep into the mountain. Yucca is a sacred site to the Western Shoshone, who vigor vigorously and for decades have opposed the use of yucca as a nuclear depository and have thus far been victorious. Nuclear power proponents like to pretend that future nuclear plants won't produce as much waste as the rickety old ones that are running now, that the, the amounts of waste will be small and they'll be manageable. Yet in reality is that they will still produce a lot of waste and nobody knows how much. And where will it go? You can't have nuclear power without nuclear waste. It'd be like burning coal without having CO2 emissions. It can't be done. We know the poor and disadvantaged and often indigenous will end up dealing with the consequences. Currently, the U.S. produces almost 2,000 metric tons of radioactive waste a year, much of it still sitting in, next to the plants that produced it. It's of my opinion and many others that no energy source that produces radioactive waste a waste that lasts tens of thousands of years should be part of a climate solution. Here's the reality. Plutonium, as I mentioned, is a byproduct of the nuclear fission process. Plutonium-239 has a half-life of 24,000 years. There are hundreds of pounds of this stuff that are produced every year in every reactor in the U.S. Taking into account plutonium's half-life, in order for it to be safely stored until it was no longer radioactive, it would have to be kept safe for 250,000 years. What could possibly go wrong in this amount of time? <laughs> Even if we were able to keep plutonium safe underground for 1,000 years, what about the next 249,000? Throw on top of that that this stuff can be used for nuclear fuel, nuclear weapons fuel, you have a very serious problem on your hands. And to put this in perspective, humans, modern humans at least, have only been roaming to Earth for 200,000 years. It's not difficult to fathom what could possibly go wrong over this amount of time as nation-states vie for power, as the earth erodes, shakes, and contorts, as rivers flood, as the earths and the storms intensify. It's just, too, it's, it's just too risky. Plutonium, despite the idea that it can be used as a time travel fuel and back to the future, poses insurmountable risks. There are very serious byproducts of nuclear power proliferation as well, like cesium and strontium, but none of these pose the same long-term risks as plutonium. Knowing that plutonium is a natural byproduct of, nucle of nuclear power production, how could anyone ever claim that nuclear energy is safe a and a viable alternative for the future of our planet? I think this naturally leads, naturally leads us to the discuss, discussion about the potential for nuclear accidents. If you were to believe the risk assessments put out by the nuclear power industry, as well as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the risks are extremely low. They put a risk of an accident at a plant at one in a million. That sounds pretty safe, right? Nothing to worry about. With 400 nuclear plants operating in the world, that would mean we'd probably only see a meltdown of a nuclear reactor one every 2,000 years. Well, the policymakers at the NRC can't do math, apparently, because though nuclear power reactors have been in operation for 80 years, we have witnessed five meltdowns of nuclear reactors in only 40 of those past years. 
Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and three reactors at Fukushima. If you do the math, and I did, and I asked someone that's smarter than me if I did it right, <laughs> the risks of an accident at a nuclear plant are one in seven. And there have been many other accidents as well that don't count. In 1961, an explosion at a nuclear reactor testing facility in Idaho Falls killed three people. Their bodies were laced with radiation. Michigan's Enrico Fermi nuclear generation plant, which sits on the banks of Lake Erie, experienced a partial meltdown in 1966. Critics argue that a major incident at this site was nearly avoided, and had it not been avoided, the whole city of Detroit could have been destroyed. There was a 1986 accident at the Surrey nuclear plant in Virginia that killed four workers. In 1989, a fire broke out at Spain's Vandalos nuclear power plant, damaging the cooling system, and the plant nearly experienced a full meltdown. In 1992, Russia's Sonsnovi war nuclear power plant released radioactive iodine into the air. Japan's Tokiomora accident in 1999 killed two workers and an explosion caused a radiation leak there. A steam explosion and subsequent radiation leak at Japan's Mikama nuclear power plant in 2004 injured seven workers and killed four more. And these are, this is just scratching the surface. There's other accidents and many that we don't even know about. And of course we've all heard about Chernobyl. It's been very well documented. HBO's made a series about it which was very captivating and brought nuclear power, I think, back into the conversation as it should be. But what isn't often discussed are the health problems and the death toll that that meltdown has caused in the last 36 years. In 2009, the New York Academy of Sciences released the most significant English language report on the deaths and environmental devastation caused by Chernobyl. After pouring through thousands of reports and studies conducted in Eastern Europe and Russia, the Academy concluded that nearly one million people died as a result of radiation exposure. Uh, I think we should all sit with that number for just a second. One million people potentially died because of Chernobyl. Even if they were off by half a million, that's still a lot of people. And I think it's also important to remember that Chernobyl still is uninhabitable. So what about Fukushima, which is even a larger meltdown? Well, the numbers for Fukushima are hard to come by. In 2013, Japan passed an obstructive cancer registration law which made it illegal to share medical data or information on radiation-related issues, denying public access, journalists like me, to medical rector records. And violators of this could be subject to fines up to 2 million yen or 5 to 10 years in prison. Additionally, a confidentiality agreement to control medical information about radiation exposure was signed in 2014 by the UN and Fukushima Prefecture. And after this, all the info on illness from radiation exposure had to go through a central repository uh, at the Fukushima Medical Center. Basically what this means is all information on radiation-related illnesses in and around Fukushima is a tightly guarded secret. Why would governments, be they Russia, the US, or Japan, not want accurate data on radiation-related cancers and deaths? I think we all know the answer to that question. Because if we start asking questions about this kind of thing, it directly challenged the nuclear power industry and the nuclear weapons industries. Okay. If the fact that nuclear power isn't carbon neutral, if that doesn't bother you, if mining on indigenous lands doesn't bother you, if the trouble with disposal of radioactive waste doesn't bother you, if nuclear power's ties to atomic weapons doesn't bother you, 
if the risks of accidents don't bother you, then maybe the cost of nuclear development will give you pause. Nuclear power is very, very, very expensive, which is why it isn't deployed everywhere. And if we are to believe in the urgency to combat climate change, nuclear power is far too slow to deploy. The average time, like I said, it takes to build a new plant is 10 to 19 years. And it's also very expensive. In 2020, renewables were the cheapest form of energy in the world. And they were also the quickest to be deployed. They were finally competitive with coal, which has always been cheap. And they are now cheaper than natural gas and far cheaper than nuclear power. And I'm talking about wind and solar in particular. Proponents of nuclear power, which often echo the industry itself, will tell us that nuclear is still the best bang for the buck because it can produce so much energy. But the pro-nuclear lobby has to admit, and they do admit, that without government subsidies, nuclear cannot compete with a renewables market. Aside from a few countries, including Japan, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, the majority of the world is turning against nuclear power. Germany, Korea, Belgium, Switzerland are all planning to phase out nuclear power. France, the largest nuclear power producer in Europe, is closing down facilities and investing in renewables. And the reasons are clear. It's cheaper to transition to renewable energy than it is to build new plants or keep the old ones running. It's often said that France is a perfect nuclear state. I've heard, I won't name names, a few on the left <laughs> that you might be aware of, claim that France is how the U.S. should go. It's run exactly like a nuclear-powered country should run. Yet France is taking many of its plants offline. And as we've seen this past summer, as a severe heat wave engulfed Europe, nuclear power was anything but reliable. France was forced to shut down half of their nuclear power plants this last summer in the middle of a heat wave. Some of them were shut down for safety and corrosion issues, and others were shut down because the rivers that they draw water from from to cool down the reactors was too warm to cool down the reactors. Think about that. We're supposed to use nuclear power to combat climate change. Climate change is heating up the rivers, and the rivers are too hot to cool down the reactors. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. In the U.S., as the country's nuclear fleet begins to age, as the Department of Energy has allocated billions to keep this whole industry up and running, we've been paying for it. And since the 1940s, taxpayers have shelled out hundreds of billions of dollars in corporate welfare to the nuclear power industry. And Biden administration is again doing the same thing. And this, this Inflation Reduction Act, which is being heralded as this, the great new savior for the environment, gives tons of tax incentives and other handouts to the nuclear power industry. And in California this last week, where I live, Newsom and the Democrats passed a bill that is bailing out Diablo Canyon. It's going to keep it running for another few years to the tune of $1.4 billion. I would argue that that money would be a bit better spent going into renewables and that they should have stuck to the agreement to shut down Diablo, which is made by unions and PG&E and civic groups. It was a huge victory, and Newsom just rolled that back, which I think it's clear that the Democrats are not our allies in this fight, or many others. <laughs> and private investors have long shunned nuclear power. I don't always like private investors, but I like when they shun nuclear power. <laughs> and there's a reason they've shunned it. They know that nuclear power is risky. It's, ex it's expensive, and it's risky. And why would they you know, support something that the government keeps bailing out? It's a one-way love affair that has to end. 
And lastly, I, I think it's really important that I, I talk about how, what nuclear power is threat to Ukraine and Russia right now. As a result of, of the, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and its sub subsequent occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest plant, the threat of a nuclear accident is imminent. As we all know, shelling around the plant, while well, Ukrainian workers are inside literally working at gunpoint, is leading to a very dire situation. We've seen some satellite images this past couple of weeks of uh, buildings being damaged from shelling. And of course, the UN inspectors that went in there this week and came out and issued a, a real call of concern that they, they believe that the risk of an accident or something happening is imminent if the war continues there. They lost power last week. The, the backup generators were started to keep the waste cool. If a fire were to break out at one of the reactors, if the control room were, were to catch on fire, if one of the generators, backup generators fail, all bets are off and an accident far greater than Chernobyl could, could occur. Any proponent of nuclear power must take into account that no other energy source on Earth poses such a risk in a war zone. And the outcome could be catastrophic, equivalent to an atomic bomb. This might sound alarmist, but I think alarm is what we need. And this is, yes, this is the first time a nuclear plant has been in the line of fire, and there are no, but there's no guarantees it's going to be the last. Taiwan has several nuclear plants. We know what's going on with Taiwan. Iran has a nuclear plant. Saudi Arabia is building a plant. And nobody can promise us that without a doubt that these plants will never come under attack or be in the middle of a war zone. If a plant has a one in seven chance of having an accident in its lifetime, I have to imagine that the odds of a plant that's operating in a war zone, the odds are much higher. For all the reasons I've laid out and, and more that I didn't get to, I, I hope that you'll join me and others in trying to uphold the legacy of the anti-nuclear movement in this country. Nuclear energy is too expensive, it's too dangerous, it's too destructive, it's too exploitative. We can do better, and we must. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.